Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about puzzles, mathematics, numbers and games. Is that... Did I do that correctly? With me is Alaric, to tell me if I did that correctly. Mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. Yeah, that sounds did, right to well, me. Did, I thought I said puzzles, mathematics, numbers and games. Oh, maybe you did. Well, it's about all those things. Uh, luckily, it's commutable. Yeah. So it, it doesn't matter the order you say them, we're still going to talk about all of them. <laughs> How are you? I'm okay. I've accidentally just drawn on my t-shirt. Uh, what colour is your t-shirt and what colour is the ink? Uh, my t-shirt is kind of white, the ink is blue, but there was already a piece of red on my t-shirt from when I was marking mocks earlier, so I think this might be the end of the road. Well, so now your t-shirt's also blue? Um, it is partially blue, I mean much less than 1%. Right, you didn't accidentally colour the whole t-shirt in, you know, <laughs> scribble all over it. No, no. Fill it in. Okay, because, you know, that happens to me all the time. It's really annoying. It might be uh, redeemable by wearing jackets and waistcoats and things. <laughs> which right is, which, to be honest, is your forte. Yep. If we, if we, if we ever do a, 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 a meet-up with listeners of the show after we get Soup's Famous and everybody listens to this, you'll likely be wearing jackets and waistcoats and belts and things like that because that's what you do all the time, 24-7. It's really all just to cover my drawn-on shirts and t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because Alvick's always accidentally <laughs> spilling things on his t-shirt, so he needs to dress up like a pirate in order to... Yeah. <laughs> cool. Do you want to do some maths? Yeah, okay. Let's do that. Both of mine today are going to be about sequences. So okay. let's start off with one. The number one has one factor, which is the True. number one. The number two Ding. has two factors, uh, one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first number to have three factors is the number four, one, two, and four. If we did the sequence of numbers where they're the first number to have that many factors... What does that sequence look like? One, two, four. Yeah. So what's the next? The next one is the next one is. Oh, it's six. Yeah, not eight. Yeah. Sorry, I thought that was weird for a second there. I thought that six had five factors, but it doesn't have four. Yep. One, two, four, six, and the next one. Oh, this is getting too hard for my brain hole. Is it twelve? How many factors are we aiming for here? We're aiming for five. Five. And an odd number of factors is only going to happen when you've got a square number. Oh, okay. But 12 has six factors. Yes. So 12 is going to come three, up four, six, 12. later. I think that's the first one with six factors. So already we know the properties of this sequence is that it's not in size order. Uh, do we know what the five-factor one is? I think it's 12. That's the six-factor one. Sorry, yes. The five-factor one is not nine. Because <laughs> um, that's one three nine. It must be eighty one then. No, I think it's feels like it'd be smaller than that. How many does sixteen have? I think that might be right. Sixteen goes one two four eight sixteen. Cool. That's it. That's the one. Yeah, sixteen, and then twelve. Should we just check that it has six factors? One two one. three four six twelve. I hope you were uh, unfurling a finger at a time when you were saying I this, because was. I wasn't. Okay, <laughs> good. Yep. So, yeah, they're not in size order. Yeah, they're not in size order, which is already an interesting property. Yep. I guess, so far, it's gone one... If I, if I go for the, the odd 
ones. Yeah. You know, highlight ones, not highlight one, highlight one, not highlight one. It's gone one, four, sixteen. Powers of four. Powers of four. Which is interesting. Okay, so predictions on seven, which is the next one to do. And it's the next old one. Well, one would expect it to be 64. Yeah. But what's added? So one had one, four had two, four, 16 had eight, 16. So the factor that gets added on is the next two powers of two. So it'll go, the factors for the number seven will be one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64. Trying to get a bit algebraic about this, because we need some sort of way in that's not going to break when we have to just start counting. Yeah. Um, then if we do the prime factorization of a number, so let, let's take 12 as an example. 12 is 2 to the 2 times 3 to the 1. Doing prime factorization. 2 to the 2 times 3 to the 1. Correct. If we think of how to use those numbers to get how many factors, you can use 0 twos, 1 2 or 2 twos, and you can use 0 threes or 1 three. And so the total number of factors is 3 times 2, which is 6. Like the process I'm doing here is if you have a prime factorization of a number, so you have 2 to the x times 3 to the y times 5 to the z, etc. Then you add 1 to each of those powers and you times them all together to get how many factors. Yeah, I see, I see. It's, it's all the different possible selections. Yeah. Of those factors, but where so the twos we, obviously aren't what, distinct. Yes. So, if I gave you any number, we could easily work out how many factors it has by doing that method. So, for example, the number 64 is 2 to the 6, so it has 7 factors. You're just adding 1 to the power. Uh, yeah. If I do another example, the number 30 is 2 times 3 times 5. Yep. So all of those powers are 1. Adding 1 to each of them, we get 2 times 2 times 2, which is 8. Uh, I'm not following the logic here. Okay, so 30 you can write as 2 to the 1 times 3 to the 1 times 5 to the 1. Yep. Those powers are 1, 1, and 1. The way that we get to the number of factors is we add 1 to each of the powers. Yeah. And then we times those numbers together. And that is because that has something to do with combinatorics. Yes. So each of those powers, like the, the 2, you could have picked 0 or 1 of them. The 3, you could have picked 0 or 1 of them. And the 5, you could have picked 0 or 1 of them. So you had two choices in each of them. I see. Yep, got it. Yep. So yep. if we bumped it up a bit, the number 60 is... 2 to the 2 times 3 to the 1 times 5 to the 1. So yeah. its powers are 2, 1, and 1. Adding 1 to each of those numbers, we get 3, 2, and 2. And times yeah. them together, we get 12. Okay. So what we've got here is an easy way of getting from a number to how many factors it has without having to list them out. And without thinking about a zero. Yeah. yeah. So I think this might be the way in. If, yes. If we're looking for a particular number of factors, so for example, if we're looking for a number with seven factors, we're looking to times one more than the powers together to get to the number seven. So you want one and seven? Yeah. Well, 
I mean, the one almost doesn't matter. Right, you just want seven. Yeah. So one so fewer than that is six. So we want something to the power of six. And the smallest number we can form with that is two to the power of six. Right, okay. So that's those ones. Well sorted. So that's, if it's a prime number, as the number of factors that you want, you should do one fewer than that prime number, two to the power of that. Yes. Okay. Now the interesting ones are the ones that aren't those ones. Yes. The composite numbers. Yeah. So, so far we've had two and six. Two fit into that pattern. So when we wanted a number with two factors, two itself is a prime number. So you do one yep. fewer than that is one, two to the power of that is two. Right. So that, that was part of the pattern. When we were looking for four factors or six factors, those were ones that weren't primes. Yeah. So, for example, the four factors, we, that is two times two. Taking one away from each of those things, we get one and one. And so we need powers of one. So we can do it yep. as two to the one times three to the one, which is six, yep. which is yep. the answer we had before. And then the next one was, that was 12, wasn't it? Yeah. So when we're doing six factors, that's two times three. Taking one from each of those numbers is one times two. So, uh, so one and two. Those are the powers. So we could do two to the two times three to the one, which is 12. Yeah. Right, so you'll get some sort of uh, allocation, yeah, and then you line them up where you put yep. the smallest prime in, and then the next one, the next one. The the difficulty though is that you've 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 rather quickly said, right? Here's how you here's how you do that particular number. I guess you're finding the prime factors of the the number sequence. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Minus one. <laughs> Yeah, it's so, this really weird tr transformation where you factorise it, you take one away from each of its factors, and then you do stuff. I don't even know what you, that's called. Well, so you, you find number in the sequence, you you take one off of it, factorise yep. that, prime factorise that, and then you slot numbers, prime numbers, into those prime factors. Yes. <laughs> Should we try generating a few more terms of the sequence and see I think we should. what patterns emerge? Yes. So, 8 is 2 times 2 times 2. Taking 1 away from each of those things, we get 1, 1, and 1 as powers. So, 2 to the 1 times 3 to the 1 times 5 to the 1? It's 30. 2, 3, yes. 9? Well, 9 we know. So, it's 3 times 3, taking 1 from each of those things, 2 and 2. So, 2 to the 2 times 3 to the 2. Uh, I thought 9, would there not be a power of 4? Have we lost a... Uh, 9 isn't there? prime. So, re remember we thought originally it was odd numbers that were giving us these powers of 4. We realised it wasn't, it was primes. Right. It just happened yeah. that the odd numbers that we were dealing with before were mostly uh, prime. prime. Okay. So, 9 is going to be 2 times 2 times 3 times 3. So, 36. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ten? So, ten... So, let's let's go through the steps. Yeah. Super slowly. Okay. Because I haven't gained fluency yet. So, ten. Yep. You've got ten. You prime factorize ten. Yep. Into two and five. Yep. You take one 
from each of those. Yep. To one and four. I agree. And then you and then you put those numbers in descending order. So yep. four and one. And then you raise the list of prime numbers in uh, uh in, in, in a one to one matching with those. So four and one becomes two to the four times three to the one. Yes. And two to the four is sixteen. And three to the one is three. So sixteen times three. Sixteen, thirty two, forty eight. Yep. Nice. Now, I, while <laughs> you were that doing down. that, I, I did the 11th one as well, sure. um, which is the number 1024. Oh, sick. I love 1024. <laughs> because it was 11, take away 1 is 10, 2 to the power of 10 is 1024. So we've got a sequence which is suddenly skyrocketed. Right, but 11 is also a prime number. Yeah. Oh, but that's interesting. So it's not powers of 4. Yes, true. Because it's not 256. It's the next one down. Oh, so how can we define? I mean, it's still the same, right? It's still. It's still two to the power of stuff. It's two to the power of one fewer than primes. Right. Yes, of course it is. Yeah. I I don't know if these have names. Um, I I've never come across them before. Let's call them a name. They always have names like happy numbers, perfect numbers, friendly numbers. Joyful numbers, like what? It, it's it's what? What's the the pattern? So it's kind of like the behavior of them is that they're kind of uh, they're like one layer deep. Yep. So let's let's call them. Uh, the only thing I can think of is mole numbers, but obviously a mole is already a number in chemistry. <laughs> I so they're a bit smaller than the powers of a Mersenne. Uh, number. Yeah. Uh, so a bit smaller than a Merzen is a Merz. Yes. <laughs> or alphabetically, a Merz L. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> okay. Merz L numbers. Wait, hold on. M comes before N. Oh. So maybe then Merz M. That's awful. <laughs> I know. Let's go to the next best one. It's they're Merz L numbers. <laughs> uh, and so it's a sequence. So it's the Mersel sequence. So, one of my questions was going to be, is it a strictly increasing sequence? And I realised how little I went through this problem, in that the first ones which were out of order are number five and number six. Yeah, Christ, you didn't even do four. I I didn't want to spoil it. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I'm just just winding you up. Yes. No, this is is the eternal curse of the Odds and Evenings host. Is that uh, the moment you think of a good problem, you have to go? Oh, can't think about that anymore. <laughs> I um, I got to the point where the first four of these numbers was were one, two, four, six, and I was like, "Ooh, that's not eight. This is a rich problem. Stop mm. there." A rich problem coming live to you with rich problems every couple of weeks or so. Lots <laughs> and evenings. I'm just working out some other ones. Uh, we've got one. Two, four, six, sixteen, twelve, sixty-four, thirty, thirty-six, forty-eight, one thousand and twenty-four, sixty, four thousand and ninety-six, hundred ninety-two. So these are all really factor-dense numbers. Yeah, they are, aren't they? They're ones where you sort of would go to if you wanted to, you know, carve up a cake or something like that. You yeah, know, standard. So maths. if you were designing, a, like a, a pack of cards. You, so that so lots of people can uh, 
you can deal it out to two people or three people or four people or five people. Like these are numbers that you quite like to do. Yeah. Much better yeah. than 52. It is much better than 52. Mm. Yeah. 60, I think, would be a good compromise for normal packs of cards. Yeah. You, yes. And, you know, these come from the, the, the standard pack of cards comes from the the, the wider tarot deck. So there yep. must be things you can bring in from the tarot deck in order to... So the tarot decks have 15 in a suit. And right. s- some Bavarian um, card games have um, non-tarot decks, which have 15. Hmm. I guess you could just extend the numbers up. Hmm. Yeah. I think 48 would be better than 52 as well. You're more often worrying about whether you can divide it by three people than five. And 48 is just true. so factor-dense compared with 52. Yeah. Yeah, but there's something nice. Uh, obviously, fifty-two as a number of cards in the deck is like it. It pulses down the the rhythm of society, right? It's like deeply ingrained in culture, heavily, heavily, heavily yep. ingrained in culture. Um, so when I say, "Oh, there's just something nice about four times 13 mm. that might not be mathematician me talking. That's probably just uh, raised in a Western country me talking. Well, 52 weeks in a year-ish. Yeah, that's true. Do you know of the uh, calendar reform systems where you have yes. 13 months? Yes, 13, uh, 13 times 4 weeks and year day at the end. Yeah, so the idea being that most of the time when you consult a calendar, you are trying to answer questions of the form, what date is the next Tuesday, or... The 13th, what day of the week is that? If you had each month having exactly 28 days, so exactly four weeks, you could have the first day of every month as a Monday, or Sunday, depending on where your uh, traditions lie. And then the first of every month would be that same day, the Monday. If you do 28 times 13, you get to 364. So at the end of the year, you have one day, which is just day of the weekless and day of the uh, monthless. And you call it Earth Day or whatever. You have it as an international holiday. And that means that the first of every month, every year, would be the same day of the week. Isaac Asimov is a big fan of this system. Uh, But the Mm. Kodak company, the the camera company, they used it internally for about 40 years or so. Yeah. Um, And they just had it as... uh reporting period seven you know they didn't come up with an extra month name it was just uh, just labeled that way most people call it sol sol what you the 13th month yep sol hmm i think we can come up with a better name okay (laughs) (laughs) okay so i have been playing a lot of words with friends okay which is a uh which is an app uh, in which it's basically a Scrabble knockoff. So I've been thinking about Scrabble a lot lately, and a very interesting thing about Words with Friends is that they use a different board to Scrabble. Okay. Which is to say that the double letter and the double word and the triple letter and the triple words are all in different places. Yeah. I think if we are to gain our title of our podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers, and games, I think we are permitted a little bit of game design. Okay. Um, and so I wanted to think a bit about like what makes a good Scrabble board mm. or Scrab- Scrabble equivalent board. 
Especially when it comes, well, I mean, particularly when it comes to the placement of these bonus squares. But also when it comes to, you know, the size of the board and so on. So should I Google what Words with Friends board looks like? I think that might be a good idea. uh, Do you want to describe it for our listeners? Yeah, so the Words with Friends board is essentially made of three diamonds uh, when it comes to the the bonuses. Um, I don't know how wide it is across, but uh, it's a grid board. Uh, I kind of expect you to know that. Sorry, listeners. Catch up. If you've never played Scrabble, go have a look at a Scrabble board and (laughs) come back to us. Um, And the bonus squares, which are the ones where if you put a tile on them, you get, you know, extra extra points. They're in a formation of three concentric diamonds. Okay. I've got a board up. Except that the diamonds are so big that they go off the edge of the board. So, um... Yeah. You end up just getting these sort of stripes that that go diagonally. Okay. So it's a 15 by 15 board. And it looks like to get from one diamond to the next, like to span a word across them, you'd have a bonus and then three spaces of empty and then the next bonus. Yeah. So you need at least a five-letter word to be able to to join them up. Yeah. And incidentally, a five-letter word is also the distance from... When, when you're first starting the game, it's typically quite a sort of beginner trait in Scrabble players to go, oh, yeah, I'm just going to hit that double word straight off because i think scrabble has the same as the center yeah. one and then it's five or some distance and then there's a double word so you're like i'm just gonna take these seven tiles and i'm gonna build the longest bestest word i possibly can you're suggesting that isn't a good method well uh, this is what i've heard actually is that you shouldn't do that because you should really be thinking about which letters are useful in further words to come and okay. you should be thinking about your first few turns rather than rather than just your first one so i i know a good tactic is the letters in the word trainers, so T R A I N E. Uh, I guess I've used R again. S, but then S. Yeah. Um, they're the most common ones. They're the, the good ones to keep because they're in so many words. Right. So if you can, you should keep those. And if you got a good word that doesn't use them, you should do that one. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So right. if you've got a choice of using um, a different vowel or your A or or your E, then you should use the other vowel. Similar with mm. constants. If you've got a choice between your T or your K, use the K. Right, yes. Keeping INGs are quite useful as well. Yes, and IER. I've often, some of the some of my longest words I've ever made, the ones where you get like the seven, using all seven yep. bonus, ended in IER. N-I-E-R. I guess that's all in trainers. Mm. Yeah. Um, so... The Words with Friends board and the Scrabble board both have this thing where they, the center is square, and you, uh, the rules of the game is. Um, and I, again, I don't know why I'm explaining this because if you're listening to this, you've probably played a game of Scrabble. Uh, is that you have to go through the center square, and so because there's these bonuses that are easily accessible and good bonuses at that, double words pretty good. Uh, you people are incentivized to, to hit that straight away, which is a fun aspect of a game. Yeah, from a game design standpoint, that's pretty good because if you're first. If you're starting, immediately you've put down a nice word. You're feeling, oh yeah, I love Scrabble. Here we go. Let me put down the word daunt or something like that. And and, and then you're in. Away you go before your friend starts you know, lining up words directly next to each other and playing words like czar and things like that. And, and the fun gets stripped out of it. <laughs> oh, no. No, look, I am an egregious QI and ZA and yep. JA player. 
in in Scrabble. So I, I'm allowed to say that, but it's dirty and it ruins the game. But you will win. Axx Zai Zu Ox. The uh, the five X words that are two letters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, J. I found I've had problems with J lately. Um, fitting that into things. Hajj is a good one. H A J. The uh, the yep. Muslim pilgrimage. I've got a lot of points off Hajj. Uh, Q A T for when Q I can't fit as well. Q A T is oh, really? chewing tobacco. Hmm. Oh yeah. So it is. Yeah. There was some article uh, recently saying that people should stop using that or something rude about that. Um, I I'm not surprised that both of us have the top of our heads though. These are slightly cheaty Scrabble words. Well, what are you going to do with your Q when you don't have a U? <laughs> Is you got the a... single most played word in Scrabble com- uh, competitions? QI. Is it? Yeah. QI. Especially when you hit that Q on a triple letter. The last thing you want to do is you want is line up a triple letter next to the le- next to the letter I. Because you know your opponent's just going to chew that up. Or XI is also acceptable. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, from a sort of game design standpoint... Uh, it would be nice to not encourage those, but I don't know. There's not much you can really do because people can sort of place their place their letters anywhere they want. Yeah, but I, I do quite like this this middle square and then the, the double word being five away because five once like a five letter word, you suddenly you feel like you've accomplished something. It opens up the board, so if the board encourages you to play a one a one to three letter word as your first turn, then. From then on, everyone's struggling to place anything. So imagine when the first person does a three-letter word, the next person also does a three-letter word, uh, making a a cross in the middle. Yeah, down the middle. Then what do you do? Yeah, all of a sudden you've got to start playing words like on and m and yeah. things like that. Right, and and it gets nasty. Like oh, some of the worst Scrabble games, or best, depending on how you know how you enjoy your Scrabble, are the ones where you have these blocks of three by three by three by three and they keep a big diagonal stripe across the board yep where people have done three letter words that all line up with each other so doing the first thing as a double uh letter so a double word thing is a good game design because if you didn't have that then you playing your first turn and then your opponent playing their first turn you don't gain anything by giving them lots of letters to go off like why not just go short and limit their choices as well yeah, but because there's the asymmetry built in that your first one is a double word, it encourages you to go as long as you can, because it's a rarer opportunity to get twice as many points out. Yes. Uh, another thing that's interesting about a words with friends board as opposed to a Scrabble board is the placement of the triple word score. Uh, triple word is a a tile uh, which, if you place a letter on it, makes your word score triple the amount. In Scrabble, they're in the corners. And they're in the centre of the edges. In Words yep. with Friends, they are not. They are there's two next to each corner. Yeah, but it's a bit more spaced out. And so the completed Words with Friends board presumably looks more like a circle, rather than um, like when you play a fellow mad dashes to the corners. Yeah, you very very rarely get stuff in the corners in a finished Words with Friends board. In fact, I actually, I've been playing for the last week or so, I just sort of got back into it, and I haven't actually played a letter in the corner the entire week. Hmm. So you're right, it does end up being more circular, or perhaps diamondy. 
in order to to fit these concentric diamonds. Uh, another interesting thing about the words with friends board is that there, if you look, and I suppose the reader can can look this up themselves, but I'll try and describe it. If you look in the middle of the edges, just a little bit in, there are kind of two double word scores that are kind of close to each other. Okay. Oh, does it quadruple word? If you yeah, both. it does. I mean, if you hit, this is the rules of Scrabble, is that if you hit a triple word and then a double word, then you get a six times. And I've never actually managed to do this. I've been I've been eyeing it up, and I've I just sort of noticed it yesterday. It's like, oh, this is two double words really close to each other. And that's not something that is very easy to do in Scrabble. No, it's not. It's not at all. Like in Scrabble, it is possible to get three times three times three, because if lots of the letters were filled up along one edge, you could hit the corner, the center, and the other corner, right, all in the same turn. That is really yes. unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's more likely on a Words of Friends board to be able to do that. Although you won't get three, you'll get two. Yep. Yeah. And this is a nice thing about the design of it. It's that it creates these elusive rewards. So Scrabble has this inherent elusive reward of using all the letters, and you get the bonus. Um, Words with Friends, by doing this, by having these two double words that are next to each other, creates this elusive reward of wow, what if I did that? Because mm. it's not hard. Yeah, You don't need a very long word to... What is it? Is, you're looking at the board right now. Is it, It's either seven or six or five. It's, it's five. It's five. So it's doable feeling. Yeah. And it's the same doable feeling that you have right at the start of the game as well when you're trying to hit a five letter uh, to hit that double word. So it's a yeah, interesting, interesting piece of design there. So a good Scrabble board design needs to have these things that are kind of... You wouldn't spot them straight away. Hmm. But then you know they line up. Uh, there's, I think, encouraging the dance around the triple word. I never do. Do you do you get this feeling? Do you do you? Does that feel good? It always feels a bit bad, like well, a game of. It kind of feels like a game of chicken. Like you're you never want to expose someone else to be able to get the triple word because you know they'll jump on it. Yeah. I played Othello for the first time in ages. Uh, I played a few games with one of my friends. And in Othello is, is the one where you're placing white or black things onto a, a grid. Uh, and you, when you sandwich... Say you've got a white on one end, you're playing white. You've got a whole row of black ones in between. If you then place a white one at the other end of the chain, you get to flip over all of the ones in between. Yep. Um, the corners are really valued because as soon as you get into a corner no one can get on the other side of you and so it will never be flipped sure and w- once you've got the corner then the one next to the corner will also be unable to flip and so on and so there's a mad dash for the corners in that as well and you have this similar thing of r- playing chicken um, trying to not let the other person get into the corner yeah and I don't know whether that's good gameplay it's pretty much all I think about when I'm playing a fellow, and I think it's, I, it's probably a lot of what I think about when I'm playing Scrabble. I know, and it's it's um, I just get this sort of downhearted feeling when it's like, uh, I can, you know, I could do this really unsatisfying word over here just so I don't have to approach that triple word section and let them approach it instead, and then eventually someone gives in, and it's always a feel, a feel bad because the opponent will always put something in. Now sometimes their triple word might be really bad, and they might only get about eighteen points off it. But there's always the chance that yep. they'll just land something massive. And it it's kind of feels inevitable. So do you want 
the game design to produce lots of nice long words rather than having tactics around putting lots of do's and frees in strategic places. Do you want it to be a word game rather than a tactics game? Yeah, I think that would probably be for the best. I don't think you can ever really stop the sort of putting a three-letter word alongside another three-letter word to make to make four words in the process. And people are always going to do that one. Especially because you get a lot of points doing that, right? Um, I think you might be able to discourage that kind of behaviour if you made it so that triple letters only counted in one word. Because uh, oftentimes what people will do is they'll do that kind of thing because they know that their, their triple letter will count in, in multiple words at the same time. Uh, see, a lot of the things you're riling against are things that I like in the game of Scrabble. I like yeah. the faddly, twiddly little bits around the uh, the weirdly placed bonus tiles. I like my short GT words. Um, I'm a tactician rather than a wordsmith. It's about what kind of game you're designing. And what are the principles behind the, the placement of the tiles such that you can create one kind of game or another? And I guess if you want a nice sort of long word game, then you can try and make it so that there's some big bumper rewards that you can get by doing particularly long words. And you can do that by placing double word or triple word tiles in, in reach of each other. Okay, here's an alternative metric you could use if you design this game. If what you want is to reward long words, have it so that you, um, the scoring is based on the length of the word. Have it say like triangle numbers. So a word length of um, two is worth the second triangle number. So like, it's worth three. Yeah. Uh, having a word length of three, the tiles are worth one plus two plus three, so six. So a four-length four word would be worth 10, a five-length word would be 15, and so on. Sure. What you do there is you reward long, long words. Yeah. Uh, there's this other aspect. Oh, that's... Yeah. I, or do you think you would have that in addition to the scoring of the individual letters? Sure. Why not? Yeah. You want to reward people for managing to get long words even with their K. Right, yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I was thinking about is the amount of points that you get per tile. Yep. So it always feels quite good when you drop a single tile and get 12 points. And 12 isn't a massive score for a turn, but it's always you, you feel efficient. Yep. And so I guess if each player had their own individual pre-allocated letter sack, I, I, don't, really, I don't know how many letters there are standard. I think it's I think it was with friends. It's, it's 80. Okay, I think it's 100 in Scrabble. Right. If you shuffled that and pre-allocated it to each player and you know each player only has a certain number of letters for the entire game. Yeah, so instead of racing to get to the extra ones in the bag, you're rewarding people for efficiently placing every tile. Yes. Yeah. That's another diff- that's in a whole different game. And I think that that would definitely lead to your sort of blocks of GT words all next to each other. Mm. Do you want some Scrabble facts? Hit me. I wrote an article about Scrabble Facts again on my website. Uh, so the, the guy that invented it is he's called Alfred Mosher Butts. Um, and he invented it and he and his wife uh, did a lot of uh, producing them just in their own warehouse. 
and they lost quite a lot of money on it. They were, they were just starting to, to make money uh, a couple of years in, but they, they kind of poured life savings into it. Um, so it was 1934 that he first invented it. Um, in 1953, the head of Macy's played it with his family on holiday, like a beach holiday, mm-hmm. and really liked it and offered to buy it. So to buy Alfred Mosher Butts out of it. And then in the next two years, it became the best-selling game. Like, everyone bought it. Um, hmm. But Alfred Mosher Butts didn't really get much money from it. He, he ended up slightly up after two decades of work on it. Wow. Um, he, he wasn't great at branding, so he called it It. It. Yeah. Um, he, he had another game as well. And it, it, the title of that is Alfred's Other Game. Oh dear. I know. Um, it, it's another word-based one. How could it possibly be different? Is it on hexagons? Uh, I don't think there's a board. I think you're playing tiles. I think it's a bit like Bananagrams. Um, mm. it, it, it was never very popular. It's got a terrible rating on board game geeks. <laughs> For the title alone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Should we do feedback? Yes. So, on the change problem that we did in the last episode, uh, we were talking about whether the greedy algorithm was always best, and we decided that for British currency it was, um, and we we proved that, but we didn't find a sensible currency where the greedy algorithm wasn't best. And we had a definition of a sensible currency. Which was that you had to include a 1p coin, a 1 cent coin. Yeah, or... You know, also that the more stricter definition of the sensible currency was that you could create any valuation. Yeah. And I think we convinced ourselves that those two statements were equivalent. Yeah, I mean, adding a one definitely means you can create any valuation. And if you were to make one that says any valuation except for one, you know, an almost sensible currency. Yeah. Then you... I can be persuaded that there's something interesting going on there. But, yes, anyway. Um, so, I think we just didn't think about it hard enough. Um, I've got two people giving me a minimal solution for a currency where the greedy algorithm doesn't work. So, one is uh, Tom Verdun, he's someone that I went to school with. And another is uh, Obnubilation. Reddit user Obnubilation. Yeah. Uh, both came out with the same minimal answer, which is if you have a 1p coin, a 3p coin, and a 4p coin, and you're trying to make 6p, then the best solution is 3 plus 3. But the greedy algorithm does 4 plus 1 plus 1, and that's minimal. Tom also suggested one in the American currency. Imagine if you're working um, at an American till register, and you don't have any 5 cent coins left. Then to make 40 cents, you greedy algorithm does 25 plus 10 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1. Plus one. But the yep. best solution is 10 plus 10 plus 10 plus 10. Hmm. So it's not quite the American system because we've taken out the fives, but it's almost. And that's a really sensible currency, and that breaks. So American without the fives is is a 1, a 10, a quarter... That's it. Um, yeah. Do they have a two cent coin? 
No. Hmm. They're missing out. I know. There's a lot fewer coins. They have a 50 cent coin, a half dollar, and they have a dollar coin, but neither is in wide circulation. Right, yes, the Saskatchewan dollar. No. Is that what it's called? Um, I've heard them as the golden dollar. Sacagawea, that's it. I've held one. Yeah. But I was told at the time that it was rare. When I last went to your house, I saw you had a copy of Godel Escher Buck. In your the bookshelf. Eternal Golden Braid. Yeah. This yeah. is a bit of a cult book um, amongst mathematicians. It's really hard to explain what the book is actually about. Do you want to give it your best go? It's about thinking and maths. And if you go too deep into something, you'll come out the other side. If you zoom in too far you'll end up being zoomed out. And apparently that's where consciousness comes from. Yeah. It's really Does that confusing. sound about right? <laughs> Probably. Who knows? <laughs> I, I, th- there's a lot of for- stuff about forming consciousness in it. Um, I, I haven't actually finished it. I'm, I'm about halfway through, but it's one of those books I've been reading for years. Um, and you sit down and you read a few pages and then you go and have to have a think about things. Um, yeah. Also, at some point... I remember the one thing I didn't like about it is that in a sort of like the fourth or fifth or some point early on in the book, it makes you get a pen and paper out, which for a book experience isn't that great. I mean, it's nice as a mathematician experience, but it's like, here's this puzzle. I don't know if that's what you're about to talk about. Uh, right, it's, it's about one of the puzzles. Isn't our podcast a bit like that? Yeah, but you don't expect it from a book. Hmm. It's like, I'm holding the book. And now I have to put the book down and pick up paper, and then I have to pick the book back up again. It's just, it's a bit unwieldy. The, the best way I can describe the book is there are a whole lot of systems in maths and art and music and things, just thinking, which have some sort of self reference. So, some sort of meta aspect to them, some sort of, they, they reference themselves. And the book talks about those different mechanisms. And does so in a way which is also really self-referential. It's a very meta book. And each chapter starts with a little story about Achilles and the tortoise. And they do some sort of surreal nonsense. And then what they were talking about, the frame of writing is also in that style. And then the chapter after is dealing with the same ideas, but not in allegory. Yeah, in a more non-fiction booky way. Yeah. It is the cleverest book I've ever read. Or half-read in this case. Um, so, like, you, you have one bit where the, the whole chapter is talking about acrostics. So, those poems where the first line... Uh, the first letter on each line reads something out. Yeah. And it, it goes on to talk about, like, how acrostics can also come in, in music and maths and that sort of thing. But this acrostic uh, spells out something which then itself is an acrostic, but backwards. Right. I wanted to talk about one of the sequences which comes up in it, uh, because I thought it was just kind of cool. It's a a self-referential sequence, and I thought we could just have a play around. So it's called his figure-figure sequence. Uh, Do you have a copy of the book on you? Yes. Okay, so I'm looking on page 73. So everyone at home, get out your copy of Go to Leisure Park and turn to page 73. Alaric? Yep. Did you 
put a magic card on page 73 in my copy of Gerda Leshebach the last time you were at my house? No. Because there's a Magic the Gathering card in page 73. What what card is it? It's a enchantment creature soldier from Theros. Token. No, I didn't. That's so weird. You're, you're making me question it now. But Did, no. No, because you must have... You've started reading this after... Christmas Eve Eve, which is the last time you were at my house. Yeah. That's so strange. It's uh, I've literally, I flicked through it, and there's a bookmark <laughs> on page 73 that's a Magic the Gathering card. That's and very strange. It's a Magic the Gathering card f- from the set where I started playing Magic the Gathering when you introduced me. Yes. Did I did I get drunk and start reading Gildred Lesh Bragg? But why would I have a soldier token from five years ago on me? Well, they're in this room. I sort of have Magic cards lying around. Mm, I don't know. Mm, no, I don't know. Either way, I found the figure-figure sequence. It's right here. Hmm. So, this sequence goes 1, 3, 7, 12, 18, 26, 35, 45, 56, 69, and it's a sequence that carries on forever. Now, the way it is defined is with the use of a second sequence, which is the sequence of all of the numbers that aren't in the first sequence. So, for example... The first number in the main sequence is 1. Now we look at a second sequence, like the non-main sequence, and its first term is the first term which isn't in the first sequence. 2. 2. So, so far our our main sequence has 1, the second sequence is 2. Now the first sequence is defined as the sum of its last term and the the other sequences last term. Okay. So the, the next se- the next term in the first sequence is 1 plus 2, which is 3. Yes. Now we look at the second sequence, and it has the next term which isn't in the first sequence. Which is 4. Yep. Okay, now we go back to the first sequence. It is defined as the sum of its last term plus the last term of the other sequence. Right, okay. Which is 3 plus 4 which is 7. Yeah. Now the second sequence is the next term which isn't in the first sequence, which is 5. Yes. And so which on. Which means it's 12 in the first one, yep. and then 6, uh, so you get 18, and then it'll be 8, so you get 26. Yeah. Okay. Right. Wacky stuff. Wacky stuff. What's going on? Can we get to grips with this? I don't really have a, a well-defined goal in this. I thought... We could just play. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. Um, interesting. So, the standard approach that you're taught in sort of GCSE and pre-GCSE, when there's a sequence, is to look at the difference between them. Yeah. But that's not really going to do much here. No, I don't think it is. They're just... It's chaotic. 2, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13... Like, it does, it kind of goes up a bit, but not really in a coherent way. The second sequence starts lagging considerably behind the first sequence. Yes, it does. I started noticing that. And so the difference of the first sequence is, I mean, it's essentially whatever the latest term in the second sequence is, because that's how it's defined. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. So the difference is just the, the, the difference is the second sequence. Yeah. The difference in the second sequence is is harder to pin down. Yeah. 
it, it's mostly one. And as you go further and further, I think it tends to one. It will do because they're they're getting more and more further. They're getting further apart. Yeah, pick a pick a random integer. It's probably in the second sequence. Yes, it gets increasingly sparse. Yeah, yeah. But they're both same size of infinity. That is a bold claim. Um, it, it, it feels like they are, but you probably don't have proof of that. They're, they're both countably infinite. You can in that you can number them. You can number them because there's the first term and the second term and so on. Yes, that's true. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> so, if you pick a random number, random integer, positive integer, it's hard to say like what the probability is that it's going to be one or the other because they're both the same size. Yeah. Uh, how about the moment you put an upper bound on it, you do get a defined probability there. Yeah, you're right. So if you put it on a million... So all the numbers 1 to a million, if you wrote them out, well, the second sequence, you'd have to go... It would have a lot more numbers in it. It would. Hmm. And by 56, the difference is about 10. So if you did it up to you know, 80 or so, probably about a 1 in 10 chance. And then if you keep going... It's not going to be 1 in 10 anymore. It's going to be less than that. Yeah, I agree. So it feels like it tends to 0. It tends to something. Yeah. No, it... De- uh, yeah. I, it does tend to 0, I guess. I would be interested to find out how quickly it tended to 0. Like, what's the probability at 1,000? What's the probability at 10,000? What's the probability at 100,000? Mm. Yep. So, like, when when have you got fewer than half? When have you got fewer than 10%? When have you got fewer than 1%? Because it's yeah. never going to get to actually zero. No. But actually zero is uh, an elusive concept in maths. Fictional zero is quite a bit more real. It's, it's going to be hard to, if given a, a particular number, to say whether it is a... Hofstadter figure figure number or not yeah like it feels like you have to enumerate all of the numbers before yeah there's no nice well let's have a look yeah it's not like they're all odd or something like that and it doesn't really have much to do with primes from what I can tell like sometimes there's a couple of primes at the beginning and then and then it sorts itself out yep adding two previous terms together feels quite Fibonacci it's like Fibonacci with chaos added in that, that initially, that's what I was thinking when I saw, a, you know, a three. Yeah, one, two, three. Yeah, and a twelve. No, that's not right. <laughs> does the book say much about it, or does it just leave it? I think it sets it as a puzzle and then doesn't even explain itself. Oh wow! It again. That's very uh, typical of GHB. Go to Leisure Park. Um, here's this rich pattern thing. Uh, you have to work out what it is from the context of the rest of the chapter. Yeah. The whole chapter was talking about figure and ground. The idea being that the the figure is the main thing that you're dealing with. So in art it's the um the subject of the painting. Yeah. Um the ground is the bit around it. It's everything else. It's if you dropped out Mona Lisa from the Mona Lisa, 
It's yeah. just the bit out, outside. The negative space. Escher, the artist, MC Escher, did a lot of stuff where he made the negative space also itself a figure. Yeah. Um, and Bach did similar things with music. Yes. This is, yeah, this is he talks about that in the in, in the book, doesn't he? Yeah. I, I don't know much about the Bach side of things. Uh, t- to be clear, Go to Lesher Bach, when you first hear about it, is often described as um, Hofstadter, the, the author, comparing the music of Bach, the art of Escher, and the logic and maths of Gödel. That's not what the book is about. It's just what it seems like it's about at first glance. Yeah, it's what he uses to make his points. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, it took me well into 100 pages in to get that that was the idea. Yeah. I mean, the book's mostly about you read it and you go, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. And then at some point you get to a chapter called Contra Quastipunctus. And then the best of the book, you're just thinking about the word Contra Quastipunctus. <laughs> that's the acrostic one, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And even even when you get through, like, there's such... You, look, literally, this is us plugging this book, essentially, for 15 minutes. But you could open it on any page, and there's a really interesting term. So... Tasky transformation. Blue programs. Mr. Tortoise's double-barreled result. <laughs> like, this, this, this type of thing is just everywhere in the book. So, um, in the figure and ground chapter, it's chapter three, that we got this um, figure-figure sequence from. Uh, it's got an Achilles and a Tortoise conversation, but you only have Achilles' half of the conversation. I, uh, you've okay. only got the figure rather than the ground. And uh, he's given a puzzle by the tortoise, which is uh, find a word with the letters A, D, A, C consecutively inside it. Mm. And he's like, hmm, well, I don't know. I'll come back to the problem later. But you've reminded me of another problem. Uh, Can you find a word that starts with H-E and ends with Um, (laughs) H-E? And and the tortoise, who you don't, again, you can't hear, but you get Achilles' reaction, so you know exactly what he said. He obviously suggested the word just H-E. And Achilles says, oh, um, that, yeah, that's technically true, but maybe you can think of another one. And then it goes back to him. Um, and he's saying, oh, this, this this problem's giving me such a headache. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of left there. And you realise that the word headache goes H-E, A-D-A-C, H-E. Like, yes, it does. Yeah, there are two puzzles with the figure and ground of each other. Yeah, um, and this is is very representative of this book. So then the chapter, without referencing Achilles and the Tortoise, will then go and do the same idea, without spelling out the actual puzzle on it. Uh, the subreddit of GHB is really good as well. Um, hmm. There's people working through all these puzzles, uh, and there's so many little Easter eggs and things in it. Um, but the idea with the, this figure-figure sequence is you've kind of got the figure and ground here, but the figure is defined by the ground, by the bits which are missing. Yeah. It's a feedback. It's kind of a feedback system, which is something that I am have a master's in, but not in a discreet way like this. Hmm. I should really finish this book. I should really finish it as well. I've tried to get through it twice and given up. Hmm. It's very dense. Uh, listeners, it's like 750 pages long. It's a hefty tome, and each page is about 750 ideas long as well. 
Right, I don't think we're going to get anywhere with this one. It's just an interesting thing to think about. It is just an interesting thing to think about. Right, so that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you for coming along and uh, joining with us as we thought about some things. What were those things, though? Let's go back over them. Alaric. So we had the number of factors, so the sequence which is made out of the first number which has one factor, the first number that has two factors, and so on. Oh yeah, that was good. Yeah, we got to the end of that one. Ish. Do you, how satisfied are you with that one? Is that quite a high on the 1 out of 10 list? Well, I came to this uh, problem, I brought it because I wanted to work out whether it was a strictly increasing sequence, and it wasn't. Right, so we solved it within the first three minutes or so. Yeah. And then we explored the depths of it. We we had a defined, unique way of getting the first number with that many factors. Yeah, and it was a weird function. Really well. Yeah. (laughs) What are you going to say? I don't think I've been going high enough with some of my ratings here. Nine. Alaric, you can't do that. It's definitely a 10. What are you doing? I'm going to say 10. Okay, I'll go 10 as well. Sorry. Okay, good. I, uh, yep. <laughs> we need some 10s a lot of the way. And if I hold need, out yeah. for the perfect solution for these things, I'm never going to get there. No. I mean, you know, shoot for the perfect and you'll hit excellent along the way. Look, if we ever do get something that where it's absolutely amazing and we completely nail it 100%, then I give you permission to give it like an S or an 11 or something like that. Special commendation. S for spinal tap. S for spinal tap. Um, the next one we did was we talked about Scrabble. Yep. I, don't, I didn't really have any particular agenda here. I just kind of wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Well, we, we both like games. Yeah, I, actually there was one thing. I did have two things in mind and then we didn't actually get onto the second one and I don't want us to go into it right now but I was also thinking about a maths version of Scrabble where you're only allowed to put down prime numbers and you're given a bag of numbers from one to zero. Um, oh, Alex, uh, that's interesting. Well, well, we'll do that next week, shall we? Um, no, I'll have thought about it by then. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we'll do a bit of feedback on it. I'm, I'm not holding out a fortnight to think about prime number scrabble. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. Uh, so yeah, for that reason, I gave us a five out of ten because yeah, you know. I, I I was satisfied. I got to say some scrabble facts. Seven. Yeah, good. And the last one was Gerdel Escherbach, G E B. Before the listeners start writing in and telling me that Alex said G H B two times, it's oh, G E B. Yeah, you did. So I just wanted to hang a lampshade on that what, before what we get letters. What is G H B? G H B is uh, almost grievous bodily harm, but an anagram of it. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I think you're thinking of G B H. No, isn't G H B? That's a chemical company. I hope it's not so no. rude. No, that's, G- that's GSK. Yeah, well, who knows? But how did you feel about your, your grievous bodily harm problem? Um, yeah, I, I thought we were going to get something better with it, but I think because it's a non-linear sequence, because it, it has the chaos inbuilt, it was always going to be weird. Like, uh, while we were talking, I brought up some pages on it, and so on Wolfram, Mathwell and things, no one's got a a formula for each of them. It's always just defined recursively. Yeah, the nice thing about 
sort of chaotic sequences and things that are a bit weird like that and that don't have analytic solutions is that you you stop applying the mathematical method to them and you start applying the scientific method to them. Yeah. So you just take the sequence and just extend it as far as possible, gather an enormous amount of evidence, you know, raise it all the way up to 10 million and then have a look at the properties that fall out. Yeah, we're doing the whole prime thing. Yeah, it's much like primes. Much like primes, except less important. And we both got to think about GEB, um, this book, which will be not completely read for, for probably our entire lives. Yeah, it's one of those ones that you just... You never get all the way through. And the annoying thing is there's a sequel as well. So... I was unaware of that. The sequel will never even start. <laughs> it's I, called I Am A Strange Loop. Of course it is. Yeah. Um, I, I know he did a lot of the work on the translations for around the world himself. And because so much of the book is about wordplay, he had to have different wordplay in each language. Oh, wow. Hofstadter is amazing. He is amazing. He's a very unique mathematician. There's not really many people that sort of think in his style. Yeah. Yeah. We can all aspire to be as unique as Hofstede or you know, Wittgenstein or you know, anybody in their field who is doing something wacky off in the corner and everyone's like, hey, check them out. Have you read any Wittgenstein? Have you read Attractus? I have read the short introduction to Wittgenstein. I mean... His actual work is essentially the short introduction to it. He only had one book, and it's about 70 pages long. Oh, really? It's very short? Okay. Uh, I mean, again, it's a very dense book. It, it's a, a book with seven segments. The first, which is one line long. The last, which is one line long. And the middle, which gets very set theory based. Hmm. Um, so I, I think the first statement off the top of my head is something along the lines of... Uh, the world is all there is. That's his kind of base assumption. Right. Um, and his last line is uh, something along the lines of... Oh no, hang on, I should get it up. Um, Whereof one cannot speak, therefore one must be silent. That's a famous quote. Uh, they all are. Yeah, it comes from this book. So what is your satisfaction score for the GEB problem? Three. Yeah. Yeah, because we didn't even really get into the... I, normally I would say, oh, a scientific method, that's great. But we didn't, we didn't do really that. get very far. We didn't even do that. So I'm going to two us on that one. Right then. Thank you for coming along with us again. Um... As always, you can find us on twitter.com forward slash odds and evenings. Uh, you can find me on twitter.com slash speakmouthwords. Alaric's not on Twitter, where are you? I've got a website, so alaricstephen.com. A-L-A-R-I-C, step hen. We've also got a website at oddsandevenings.com. And uh, you can find us, if you're listening to this on the website, we're also available on sort of iTunes and Stitcher and... Anything that uses an RSS feed and everything like that, as far as we can tell, except for Google. Oh, no, I've got us on there. You've got us on Google? We're on Google, folks. We're (laughs) laughing. Brilliant. Um, Theme music, which you can probably hear right now, is by David Russell 323 on YouTube. 
and uh, all of the background music which you hear is in the show notes somewhere or on our website or something like that you can go and find it yourself if you care thank you very much see you next time good night Alex good night Did I put a blooper in in the last episode, at the end? I don't... I don't think you did. I was seriously considering it. I had everything lined up for there to be a blooper at the end. I, I'm on board for that plan. Okay. Bloopers are good. They are. It's a bit cliche to put a blooper at the end, but I feel like people kind of expect it from podcasts. So. Yeah. yeah. Keeps them listening. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about puzzles, mathematics, 